So we have been in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, we're moving this week is the last week that we're in Luke, and we'll be moving into Acts, kind of bridging over into Acts as we look at a couple passages there in the coming weeks. And we've been looking at, at the Gospel of Luke through the lens of Jubilee, that Jesus, this is how he announces his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. So he says, I'm coming to bring good news for the poor, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed. And then he says, it's this year of Jubilee. And that re- reflects back to this, this uh, old practice for Israel, where four things would happen. Number one, it would be a year of Sabbath. Every 49th or 50th year, they would have a year of rest. The second thing is that they would release, restore all the land back to its original owners. They would release everybody from their debt, and they would free every slave. It's a beautiful picture of what God has come to do that was supposed to be reflected in his people. And so Jesus announces his ministry. He says, this is what I've come to do. And then we've been watching along as Jesus has enacted and announced this Jubilee ministry. For many weeks, we've been watching and learning. And, and, and one of the uh, theologians that I read, he says, we're starting to dream the dream of what Jubilee could be. We're starting to believe, number one, that it's possible, and then we're starting to dream what that might actually mean for us today to be people of Jubilee. And we'll get into that very practically starting next week. So Jesus announces, he's done all this stuff, and we're going to pick up the story today in in chapter 7. It says, then John's disciples, so John is a person who's been following around with Jesus, John's disciples told him about all these things, all the things that Jesus had been doing. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, to Jesus, asking, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? The good disciples, they just verbatim repeat what Jesus said. So, at that time, Jesus had healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits. He had granted sight to many blind people. You hear in that statement the exact reflection of what Jubilee is. He's bringing Jubilee. He's doing all the Jubilee things. So Jesus replies to his disciples and he says, Go and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are healed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. He's saying, I'm bringing Jubilee. Look, Look at all the things that I've done. Jubilee is here. And I am the one bringing it. I am the promised king who will install Jubilee. But then it ends with a very weird quotation. So he says, I've done all these things. And it says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, to me, this is a super weird way of ending this interaction and this statement. And now this word offended, in the original language, it, it actually means, or it, it, it has the same root word of where we get the word scandalized. That's what he's saying. Blessed is the person who is not scandalized by me. Or another way of, of, um, of translating it is to say, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. So what is Jesus saying? What is it about Jesus' jubilee ministry and the person that Jesus is that might cause people to stumble or be scandalized by him. And this passage has two answers to that question, and we have to dig a little bit behind the passage into the context to understand what Jesus is saying. Why might people at that time be scandalized by Jesus, and why might we be be scandalized as Jesus? So the first thing that we need to know that might not be visible to us is that this this passage is littered with allusions to the book of, of Isaiah. 
Isaiah is a prophet from the Hebrew scriptures, and he existed long before Jesus came around. But the Isaiah is, is where Jesus gets his language for the Jubilee statement, the statement that he makes in chapter 4. So it's referencing back to this book of Isaiah. And one of the images that's used in Isaiah for stumbling is the image of a stone. The image of a stone. Listen to how Richard Hayes, a very great uh, Bible commentator, says what he says about this. Isaiah's famous and enigmatic stone image draws a sharp contrast between the prophet's trust in God's promise and Israel's faithless reliance on military power as a source of security. Isaiah proclaims that paradoxically, it is precisely those who trust in military power who will stumble and be destroyed. He's saying there's two ways of trusting in God, or there's two, there's two ways of, of being in the world. One is that you trust in military power, and the other is that you trust in God. And so Isaiah says there will be a stone laid in the middle. It looks like putting it, you can think of it like this. It's a stone in the middle, and one way is that you trust in military power, and then that stone becomes a stumbling block. Or the stone is laid here, and if you trust in God, that stone actually becomes a cornerstone. There's two ways of being in the world. And then he's saying that basically the same thing that was happening in Isaiah is now happening in Luke. The people that Jesus came to were expecting the Messiah to be a military hero. That he would come and he would display military power. But Jesus instead comes in this different direction. He comes not as a military hero, but as John calls him, a lamb. So Hayes continues, The point is that John and his disciples should not stumble over Jesus' unexpectedly peaceful way of bringing in God's promised reign. In light of the echoes from Isaiah, the answer that we, should, that we readers are to supply to John's question, is Jesus the coming one, is something like this. Yes, he is the coming king for whom we have hoped, but his coming kingdom must be interpreted not in terms of violent or, or coercive power, but in light of Isaiah's images of divine mercy and restoration. So the people had hoped that there would be a Messiah who would come, and he would bring this jubilee by military power. And Isaiah says, no, that's actually not how this jubilee ministry is going to come. It's not going to come through a military, military strength. It's going to come through a suffering servant, he says. It's going to come through this pattern of reversal. That evil is overcome and people are restored, not through military might, but through a king that will die. It's a complete reframing for these people about what God's kingdom looks like and what the, who the Messiah will be. And therefore, it's scandalous. It's a, it's a surprise. It's a stumbling block for them. And so Jesus is like this stone. That's what uh, this passage is saying. And on one hand, you can hold on to your vision of what God is like, that he is this warrior king, in which case Jesus will become like a stumbling block to you. He will become scandalous. Or you can allow Jesus to reshape your vision of who God is. And then, Isaiah says, he becomes like a cornerstone. He becomes like a foundation on which to build your life. So Jesus is, is scandalous because he will challenge the images we have of who God is. So that's the first thing, the first scandal. And the second scandal is this, um, or, or the second piece of context we need to understand in order to see the scandal is this. It's where John is asking this question from. So John the Baptist is asking Jesus this question. Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, yeah, like, look at all the stuff that I'm doing. I'm doing all the Jubilee things. And the passage that we read is from Luke 7. But back in Luke 3, we actually hear where John the Baptist is when he's asking this question. 
This is what it says. When John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that he had done, Herod added this to everything else, and he locked John up in prison. So John criticized this king because the king had married his uh, sister-in-law and done other evil things, and so he got locked up in prison. So John's question is coming from someone in prison. That's where he's asking this question, are you the Messiah? And if I was in John's shoes, here's what I would be saying. Oh, Jesus, it's so amazing that you're doing this jubilee ministry, that you're releasing people, that you're giving sight to the blind. This is what I've hoped for my whole life. This is what my people have hoped for their whole life. And speaking of uh, freeing people, I know a guy. It's me. I'm in jail. I could use a little freeing. I'm a captive. Like, maybe you could come and free me. I see you doing all these amazing things out in the world. What about me? Come and free me. Come and release me. Come and efface in me, if you remember us talking about that word. And here's the thing. We know Jesus could get him out. Jesus does these kinds of things all the time. This is exactly what he's there to do. And if he was to get anyone out, it should be John, in my opinion. Not just because we share a name, so he sounds like a great person. But it actually says in this passage that there's no one greater born of women than John. Which is a really weird way of phrasing that. But no one greater born than women of John. He's like the best. He's a super saiyan Christian. And you think if anybody would be released, it would be this guy. And that's not what happens. John stays in jail. He suffers. And then he dies. And if you know the story about him, he dies a gruesome death and a seemingly senseless death. Basically, his head gets chopped off and becomes a party favor at this really weird party that's going on. It's not even like a good way to die. And so what's the second scandal that's here? I think for me, this is the way I would word it, that a life following the all-powerful, all-good king of the universe, a life lived in pursuit of jubilee, a good life, may mean suffering and even death. A life following Jesus, a life pursuing jubilee, may mean suffering and even death. And these two ideas together, I think they were very scandalous in the time of Jesus, that God may not be who we think he is, and that following Jesus may mean suffering and death. They were very, very scandalous back in Jesus' time, but I think they're just as scandalous actually today. The presence of pain and suffering in our lives causes us to question who God is or if God is around. And it's one of the main reasons people leave their faith. We were chatting about this in our community group, and someone said, oh, of all my friends who have walked away from faith, this is one of the biggest reasons. Pain and suffering. But, listen to what Jesus says. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. There is another way of being in the world. A possible way forward where the vision of who God is can actually get built on Jesus and where pain and suffering isn't a stumbling block but actually can become a foundation for us. So how can we get there? That's the question I want to talk about for the rest of the time. So I wrote this sermon twice, actually three times. The first two times, um, it's always dangerous when I don't preach. So last week I didn't preach, which is fantastic. I get a week off. But I do an extra week of research. So that also means that I've been thinking about things for a week longer, so my notes go from like four or five pages to like eight or nine pages. There's always so much stuff. And then I was like trying to cut it down, trying to cut it down. As I was prep, finishing my prep on Friday night, I realized um, I was talking about this idea as if I was like a professor, you know, pain and suffering. 
and it felt just off. And as I was praying through it, I was realizing that maybe that's helpful to you to think about, you know, philosophical reasons for pain and suffering. Um, It's fun for me. But um, pain and suffering is a very personal thing. The reasons we wobble on our faith because of pain and suffering aren't the big reasons usually. They're very personal. And so what I decided to do was actually share very, very personally from my own life about a time of of pain and suffering. And the the point of this is not to enter into the suffering Olympics with you, to be like, I've suffered more, or you've suffered more, or to try to make you feel uh, sorry for me in any way. I just want to put it into that context and that register. I think it will be helpful for us. And and I I hope that it opens up space for you to share your own stories, too. Um, So let me just give you a bit of my own story for context. Some of you might know this, but some of you are newer, so, so you probably don't. Uh, I became the pastor uh, uh, here uh, just over three years ago, and um, it was uh, not my first plan, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but we had a founding pastor who was here for just over 10 years, and we didn't have a pastor for about three years, and so we tried to find one, tried to find one, couldn't find one, and then we settled on me, so I wasn't plan A for this place either. Um, a few months into pastoring, COVID hit, um, and... Uh, COVID was difficult for all of us, not just for me. But one of the things that was difficult about being a pastor here was that over half the people in our church left during COVID. And part of my call, like I'm not the kind of person who, if this church ended tomorrow, I wouldn't go pastor somewhere else. I don't feel a call to pastor in general. I felt a call to pastor these people at this place at this time. And having half of the people leave about... 40 or 60% of those people um, left the city altogether, and then about another 30% of them went to another church with our old pastor. And it was a very hard time for me. It was very difficult. It was very painful for for us as people left. We felt called to to lead and pastor these people, and they left, and it was really hard. At the same week that COVID happened, I was diagnosed with uh, colon cancer that same week. Um... And uh, that was a very difficult season, very difficult week for us, maybe the most uh, difficult week of, of my life. And so, praise God, I'm on the other side of that. But it was over a year and a half of uh, chemo, radiation, two surgeries, and uh, the ramifications still working themselves out in my body. So that all happened in a week, but, but kind of played out over the next year. And then just as COVID was finishing... Um, and we were able to meet back together here, or at least the restrictions were coming off, the basement of this building flooded. And um, uh, if that wasn't bad enough, when they were trying to, to cut out the drywall here uh, in order that there wouldn't be any mold, they cut into asbestos in the furnace room. And that meant that asbestos blew everywhere into the building. And so we are out of this building for a whole year. Now, look, I see the look on some of your faces. They cleaned the building. So you can, you can breathe deeply. It's totally fine. <laughs> But we are out of the building for a, a whole year. And so it was just a bunch of years of, of really, uh, of pain and suffering of different sort in my life. Um, and when I think about that time of my life, through the lens of this passage, three things stand out to me. The first one is this. Um, the things that weren't going right, or the things that were bringing pain, and the places that I felt like we were suffering, were actually, they did feel like scandal or surprise to me. And that's really surprising 
in and of itself when I look back on it for three reasons. The first one is this. Like, the New Testament is super actually clear that we will face suffering. Like, Jesus is not clear about a lot of stuff, but he's like, in this world, you will have suffering. Like, sometimes people are like, hey, Jesus, should we pay our taxes? And he's like, I don't know, go get me a fish. And they're just like, no, just tell me, like, should I pay my taxes? And this one, he's just super clear. You will have suffering. And this, this passage in 1 Peter 4 stands out to me. It's like, dear friends, do not be surprised when you have suffering, as if something unusual was happening to you. So it's, I know that I shouldn't be surprised. The second thing is, I know from history that if you're going to do anything worthwhile, or you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to be hard. I've shared a few examples of that. And then thirdly, I'm a pessimist. So, like, I, I should be thinking of the worst-case scenario at all times. That's basically what I think that's my job, right, honey? Um, that, that's who I am. But it still came across as surprising to me when all these things happened. It felt like scandal. And there are probably two reasons, as I was reflecting this week, why I felt scandalized. The first is this. I felt like I'd already sacrificed. I'd sacrificed a little bit to become the pastor of this church. Now, again, I want to be super clear. I am, I'm phenomenally honored that, to be the pastor here. And I try to say that every week, and it is truly um, what I feel. But this wasn't plan A for me at all. Um, I was uh, moving towards, I've been in ministry for 15 years, and I was moving towards uh, getting back into business and starting a business with my friend. And we felt God inviting us into this into this ministry, and uh, actually it was Sarah who really, really said, like, I think we should do this, so blame her. Um, that's, what I'm, that's the point of this sermon, actually. <laughs> but it wasn't for us, and she said, no, I think we should step in, and I think we should do this, but it wasn't plan A. So it was already diverting what I thought I wanted to do. I felt like I was sacrificing a little bit. And, and, and so um, when more suffering came into my life, when it just got progressively harder... I wanted, I was saying to God, the reason I was surprised, because I was like, but I already did, like, I already did the hard thing. Like, why don't you make it easier in my life? I already took the hard road, the narrow road, and now you're making it like a razor blade that I'm standing on. It's just, why, why are you making it even harder? And so it was scandalizing. And the second thing I felt like is that it's, it was too much. It was an unreasonable amount of difficulty. It was like, God, I'm willing to take this much in following you, and now you're going over here. Like, it's an unreasonable amount. You're, you're stepping over the line. You're pushing me over the line in my life. And so it became like a scandal to me. And before we go on, I just ask you this question to, to reflect on in your own life. You know, where are the places that you feel scandalized by pain and suffering in your own life? Where are those places where it becomes a stumbling block to you? And why? Just to ask that question. Just trying to share my story to open that up. And again, a great thing to talk about in community groups. So, so part of my journey uh, in that season was just a time of prayer. I couldn't really go see anyone, if you remember, back to COVID. So I was just riding my bike angrily around praying, um, which is what I do normally anyways. But uh, just praying and riding and just frustrated prayers. And, and I just want to say God took all of those, actually. Um, he wasn't, uh, he didn't, it wasn't, I didn't feel at all like he couldn't take it or he didn't want to take it. He took all of my angry yelling at him. And um, if you read through the Bible, that's not abnormal. But one day I was reading through Habakkuk, um, you know, as you do when you get cancer in the middle of a pandemic. I was like, well, let's maybe try some different places in the Bible. And uh, I came across this verse, Habakkuk 3. 
And, and here's what it says. Though the fig tree does not bud, there's no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen, and there are no herds in the stall. And I just remember being like, yeah, that's how I feel. That's how I feel. You know, I could do without the figs and olives. You know, I don't really jive with those anyways. But don't take the flocks. And it just felt like thing after thing after thing after thing was being pulled away. And uh, I remember at that time, um, so the doctors, before they give you anything, before they give you chemo and radiation, before they do any surgery on you, they have to tell you, like, every possible thing that could go wrong. It's, I think, their fiduciary duty or something. I don't know. You can ask Mo and Laura. But it also comes across as quite frightening if you're the person that's getting spoken to. And they're like, so, one in 500 people deal with this, and one in 1,000 people deal with that. And I just remember thinking, like, oh, the olive crops may fail. There may be no more figs on the in my life anymore. Because you just hear about all these things that could happen to you. And so this passage, I just remember being like, yeah, 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 I feel like this. I feel like everything's stacked against me. I feel like things are getting taken away. But here's how the passage finishes. All these things are going wrong. It says, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. And I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And it was like getting hit right in the solar plexus. You know, sometimes God speaks in the still small voice. And other times he just gives you a right uppercut, right to the jaw. And it was one of those moments for me. And I I realized I couldn't celebrate in God. I couldn't pray the rest of that passage. There was no room uh, for rejoicing or joy in my life. It was the last thing on my mind. And suffering in that moment in my life had become like a stone for me. And my vision of who God was was deeply challenged. Can I say that God is still good if there's no food, if there's no fruit, if there's no flocks? And I realized at that moment I couldn't. I had been deeply scandalized. My picture of God had been deeply scandalized by what I was going through. And I felt like God had let me down. What I really wanted from God was olive crops and herds in the stall. All the things that I thought God would give, a good God would give to his son if he was truly good. That's what I wanted, and that's what I expected. And I realized it's the stuff that I felt like God owed me. He owed me that. I was stepping into this role. It wasn't plan A. And it felt like he just continually stripped away everything. And I realized that I wanted God's stuff, the stuff that he could do for me more than I actually wanted God himself. He, by himself, was not enough. And if he couldn't give me the good stuff that I wanted, the stuff that I felt like I deserved, then there's no reason to celebrate. There's nothing left to rejoice in. And what was happening in my life was the same thing that was happening in this passage, the same thing that was happening to the people Isaiah was speaking to, the same thing that John the Baptist was going through, the same thing all the disciples were going through. They had a no, no category for a suffering Messiah. No category in their mind. They only understood a God who could act in military strength. And I only understood a God who, if I stepped into this pastoring role, that would keep our church the same. Maybe a little smaller, maybe a little bigger, but not take 50% of the people away. I couldn't make sense of a God who would give, you know, a relatively healthy guy in his 30s who said yes to pastoring cancer. I just, I had no framework for that in my mind. And there was a stone in the middle of my life called suffering. Because I have a vision of who God is and how he would act in the world. 
and it was causing me to stumble. And I didn't really understand how to make it a new cornerstone in my life at the time. And so to learn to celebrate, to learn to rejoice, this passage was deeply challenging to me. I realized something had to change. And before I get there, I just encourage you to ask yourself this question, too. Are there places in your life where you're going through pain and suffering that's scandalous to you, but there's an invitation, actually, for your vision of who God is to change? Do you, can you name what the problem is and what the God that you envision is and, and then be invited into change? So I realized that my vision of God and who he is was very, very tied up, actually, in my vision of what I thought my life would be. And I, I, and I think most of us, have this vision of life that just gets better and better. But that's the vision, that we're kind of on an escalator where life is going to get better all the time. So we move up, you know, we get more savings, we get a better job, we go from being single to married to married with kids to grandkids, you know, this kind of escalator of our expectation of life. And a couple, a couple comments about this. So here, here's like what it is, that there's an expectation of life just getting better and better all the time. One sociologist said this, which I thought was really helpful. He said, Americans want to be great, which means that they want to be up at the top of that tip. But Canadians, we want a great life, which means that we just want to be somewhere in the middle. We're not as far up as them. And sometimes I think when we say, talk about this life, a lot of people say, like, no, 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 I don't want to be like the richest person in Vancouver. But what we have is a vision of the, the good life that lives somewhere in the middle. I call it the great Canadian middle-class dream or the upper middle-class life. That's the vision of life. That's where our lives should be going if everything works out. And the second thing I'll say is this. If you're from an immigrant family, specifically, which I come from as well, uh, I think we can sometimes be like, oh, that's the Canadian dream. But I actually think that that's, the immigrant dream is actually even stronger because the story is we came here for a better life. We came here for that middle-class life. So there's maybe even more pressure on you to get there. You know, Drake, uh, the Canadian rapper, has a song called Started From The Bottom, which is started from the bottom, now we're here. Started from the bottom, now the whole team's here. And I think that's a song about immigrants. He's not answering my emails, but when he does, I think that he will let us know. But that, that is basically the story. We started here, and now we're here. And there's a lot, a fundamentally a lot of pressure on, on us. And, and, and all of our lives, I think, go on this track. This is how we think, this is just how life works. So what happens is when we, when we add God into the mix, and go back one, Joel, when we add God into the mix, we place him into that story. So what does Jesus do? He helps me in that journey. He helps me get to where I need to go. He becomes like a handrail for me. And this is, he, he helps me get to the, the next level. And this is why blessing is easier for us to deal with. Like, there's no scandal about blessing. When God blesses you, you're like, I, God blessed me so much, I think I might leave my faith. That's not the story of anybody, right? Because it's natural. That's how our lives should go. God is helping us go in the direction our lives should go. And this is natural. This is how every um, you know, society works. This is how every religious system works. We placate the gods to give us what we want. It's normal that our brains would work this way. And as a sidebar, this is why a lot of people in our society don't follow Jesus. If the goal is just to get the good life, to get to this good middle class life, then maybe you need Jesus. Or maybe you just need a better job. Or maybe you should just go to Whistler. That, like, all of these things, this is why we say you do you. Because it's like, whatever gets you there. If it's Jesus, good for you. If it's not Choose something else. Do ayahuasca. I don't know. Whatever gets you where you need to go, that's the whole point of life. 
Now, we know intuitively on this path that pain and suffering are part of the journey, right? You know that getting to this goal is going to be hard. I'll have to work the extra hours to get ahead. We'll have to mortgage the house to start our business. I'll have to go through hours and months and maybe years of sleep deprivation so that my children will live, right? We know that pain and suffering will be part of the journey, but pain and suffering only makes sense if it's moving us up moving us closer to our goal of where we're going. Where pain and suffering become very scandalous is when they challenge our vision of the good life. When they cause our lives like this. They don't help us go up, but they go like this. They cause our lives to stall out. Our dream doesn't get as far as they could. And this is what happened to a lot of people during COVID. I always thought my kids would have a backyard, and now I'm realizing they never will. This dream that I had of what my life would look like is not being met, and so I'm going to go to Abbotsford or wherever, wherever backyards live. I don't know where they live. And we get angry and we get surprised. Or, even worse, the pain or suffering that we can't make sense of is it's moving us down the other way. Where you are not just sitting stagnant, but you are actually going downwards. Your life is getting worse. And that becomes scandalous. And if we believe in God, then really, and and our vision is of this good life, then there's really only one thing that we can do, which is that we basically we pray for God to reverse the suffering and pain in our lives. And that, to get our lives back on track. And that was my prayer life at the beginning of all these things that happened. God, you know, I hear you're a God of jubilee. I hear you like to heal people, for example. And here's the good news. I now need some healing. So if you're that God of Jubilee, maybe you can come and heal me. Think about it. Think about the the headline in the Vancouver Sun or Daily Hive. Pastor with cancer miraculously healed. Maybe like young, good-looking, funny, humble pastor gets healed of cancer. All doctors come to faith. Church grows exponentially. All of these things that were attached to my vision of the good life. And when I prayed those kinds of prayers, again, God's there and he's listening, but I found him eerily silent, actually. And it was quite frustrating to me. And the way that I envisioned it is that I couldn't really see his hand reaching into my life. I wanted his hand to reach in and pull me up. Pull me back up to where I thought I should be. Pull me back up to a place without pain and suffering. But what I came to see through this process is that God wasn't silent, God wasn't absent. He was there. He was just not interested in pulling me back up to the place that I thought he should. Because he didn't want to pull me back up into a vision of my own story. He was pulling me down into a vision of his. Into the true story of the universe. And he says it many times, but maybe no more clearly than in Luke 9. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. And he was inviting my life to take a different shape, not up and to the right anymore, but a new shape of dying and rising. Where I followed him into his life, into the life of the cross and the resurrection. And that was deeply scandalous to me. Because everything in my life everything that I've experienced as a person, all of my expectations were that my life would be going up and to the right, that that was success, that that's what should happen. And I had no vision for this other kind of life, of dying and rising. But here's the thing, I saw Jesus' hand there. 
And when I started to pray those prayers along with him of dying and rising prayers, I I met Jesus in that time and in that place. And I remember having a very visceral image of like God's hands at work uh, one time when I was uh, experiencing radiation. And um, basically, I, I think like I always seen God's hand just pulling me up into the good life. And his hand looked something like um, maybe what, like, I think of Gwyneth Paltrow's hands look like, like a manicured white hand, you know, white, white-collared hand, pulling me up into this better life. And I, I just had this visceral image of, of what Jesus' hands actually look like. The Bible says that Jesus' hands have holes in them, nail holes from where he was on the cross. That our God is not a God with manicured fingernails, but one who has suffered and who has died. And that those hands were reaching out to me very, very clearly in that moment of my life. Pulling me down, inviting me, not into becoming marginally better, not into a small story, but actually into the true story of the universe, down into the cross, into death, and into resurrection. And when I prayed those prayers, started to agree with God and see his hand there and start to pray those prayers, I met Jesus in a very profound way. Um... And the things in my life that were the biggest hardships became places of worship. I, I, you know, getting uh, radiation, is, at least uh, for colon cancer, is a fairly um, dehumanizing process. You basically take off everything from the waist down, and then you get in front of a bunch of strangers, which is always fun. And then you lie down, face down on, um, on this thing while they shoot lasers into your butt. Um, that's a technical term, sorry. Um, <laughs> It's fairly dehumanizing. It's also weird. Like, I feel like if I was completely naked, it'd be a little more, but we were wearing a shirt. It just feels even weirder. I don't know. I was like, I'm like three years old. Um, but it's this dehumanizing thing, and I, I, I always felt sorry for myself going into there. And, and I realized um, I, I had these, this picture of God's hand in that place, and that bed that I had to lie on for five minutes every day became a place of worship. I, can't, I just can't describe to you how Jesus met and ministered to me there in that place. And I, it went from being something that I dreaded to actually something I weirdly looked forward to because I knew that Jesus would be there. And, yeah, it became an unbelievable place of worship for me when I learned to see that God's hand actually might be dragging me down into just a better and a different story. The other thing that happened is, is so many other passages in the Bible started to pop out for me. Let me just read a couple of them for you. Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, which we're all like, yay, believe, but to suffer with him. James 1, consider it a great joy. There's that word again, rejoice, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know the testing of your faith, faith produces endurance. 2 Corinthians 1, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And we're like, yeah, put that on a mug. I want to see that every morning. The reverse continues. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Maybe it's just in that place of suffering that God will meet us and comfort us. And that's what I found in my life. And I also realized that while almost everything in my life has encouraged me to make my life a little bit better, that Jesus didn't have to die and rise to make my life a little bit better. Jesus didn't have to die and rise in order to heal me from cancer, actually. He could just do that from heaven. 
I don't know how he does it, but you know, whatever. Bippity-boppity-boo, I don't know, whatever. Jesus actually didn't have to die and rise to bring Jubilee to the world. He seemed to be doing that quite fine when he was on the earth himself. Jesus died and rose because he wants people like me, like you, to follow him and become new creatures and new creation. Humans who look like Jesus, who can become new people. Humans who can actually learn how to suffer with and for people in order to bring jubilee into the world. And if that's true, then maybe, just maybe, there's a purpose for suffering in my life. It can become a place where I meet Jesus And it becomes a place where I actually learn the true vision of who I am as a person. That I might not just be a little bit better, a 2.0 version of myself, but I actually might be someone who looks like Jesus. And if that's true, and if that's my story, then maybe I can learn to celebrate and rejoice even in the midst of disappointment and pain and suffering. Close with this. Tim Keller, who's one of my heroes, um, he's a pastor in New York for many years. He's also going through his own cancer journey. He's stage four pancreatic cancer. He's going to die uh, very soon from it. And he says at the beginning of his ministry, he met a bunch of people and, uh, that had walked away from faith. And they said the reason is because of pain and suffering. Pain and suffering in their lives or pain and suffering in the world that caused them to walk uh, away from their faith. And so he's a young pastor. He's thinking like, oh, I got to you know, start dealing with this and thinking about it, talking about it more. But he said the longer that he pastored, he also met people who came to him and said, the reason that my faith is strong, the reason I love Jesus is pain and suffering in my life. Both are true. So he says, suffering is an experience. We all go through it. It's what we tell ourselves about suffering and about the God who stands behind suffering that changes everything, that makes it either into a stumbling block or into a cornerstone. And I think that's the invitation for all of us. What is your vision of God? Is it a God who is going to be a stumbling block to you or who can become a cornerstone? And what is your vision of following this God into a life shaped by Jesus? Are you committed to following God in the pattern of dying and rising or is your life run by the story of just making gains over and over again? I encourage you to think about these questions and to chat with people, maybe in community groups or somewhere else about them. Let's pray to close. God, we stand, um, as, we, as we prepare ourselves to respond, I just think of standing at the foot of the cross and the people who must have stood there and just thought nothing good can come of this. The suffering, pain, and death. But as we celebrated a few weeks ago at Easter, that you are alive. That you are alive as a God who has suffered with holes in your hands, with a wound in your side. And you stand there inviting us to walk into this pattern of dying and rising too, that our suffering may have a purpose, that our suffering may make us new people, that our suffering may unite us with you and unite us with other people who are suffering in the world. So as we respond together, as we sing, as we pray, as we take communion, we ask that you would drill this deeply into our hearts. We become people who, when we have those times of scandal with you, that we would actually become people who see your hand reaching out to us and inviting us to die and to rise. Pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.